So hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's ASF Weekly Science Podcast. We've had a bit of a break lately. Unfortunately, the COVID finally got me. And once I even started feeling better, my voice didn't recover until almost just a few days ago. So I know that we have a lot of news to catch up on, and I'll get to that next week. Um, I'm also including an update of our favorite 90 Day Fiance, autistic transgender cast member Cleo and her boyfriend Christian. I will say their storyline is kind of tame compared to what's going on with some other couples on the show, so you'll get an update. So this week, we are very lucky to be talking to Dr. Andrew Whitehouse from the University of Western Australia in Perth. Dr. Whitehouse is a speech and language pathologist turned autism researcher who's been involved in dozens, if not hundreds of studies, everything from understanding language preferences to the microbiome and the GI system to interventions like oxytocin, to interventions for early supports and communication in toddlers with autism. He's also looked at things like outcome measures and improving outcomes, um, systematic reviews, genetic studies, um, all for those on the spectrum. I wanna get back to that idea of early intervention and supports for social communication in a second. You also may know if you are from Australia, Dr. Whitehouse, because he led the development of a national guidelines in Australia for diagnosing autism. And I have wanted him on this podcast for so long and I'm honored he's here. So before we begin, I wanna to touch on this notion, as I just mentioned, of improving social communication outcomes for people with autism, because this plays right into what we're gonna talk about today. So not being able to communicate verbally or even through gestures is an impairment. There are very few options for people outside of an AAC device to communicate without speech. And even then, AAC devices are not widely available. You need training on them and they're expensive. So focusing on communication seems like a good way to start helping people with autism. We recently posted something, a story about Amy Weatherby on our social media page and a number of advocates responded to us and said we were being insensitive because we referred to problems in social communication as deficits and not differences. And we were also preventing parents from accepting their children in the way that they were. This is a prime example of the division in the autism community. It has become so triggering to some people to use the word intervention that sometimes people don't kind of realize what the intervention is for or what behavior is being supported or dare I, dare I say improved. And what we all know I have strong opinions, improving the communication of someone with ASD or who has challenges with communication or social communication, this is not a bad thing. If a child needs help, you help them earlier, effectively, and in ways so that they can improve their communication. This isn't about embracing differences, it's about improving life skills. The interpretation that seems to be that improving communication means that this intervention may turn someone into something else like a debate champion and a parent is unable to accept their child unless they are incredibly verbal and have a wide vocabulary is ridiculous. What we're talking about is allowing someone to make basic requests for their needs. So this fracture in the community is one example, or what I provided is one example, is what is known as what uh, we're currently calling the medical model versus the neurodiversity model in autism. 
And let me just say, I know that most people have viewpoints in the middle. So they agree that for some people, differences in perception and communication and even cognitive abilities are something that shouldn't be changed but embraced. And it's a part of the wide variation in differences in people. On the other side, the medical model says that people with autism show deficits in behavior, need for medical and clinical treatment, and in some ways, yes, their behaviors need to be changed. I think a lot of the differences in these two viewpoints have to do with pers people's personal experiences with autism. But if you wanna know more about this vitriol in the community, if you haven't experienced it firsthand, you can just go on Twitter. This, these fractures come from the fact that there's differences in representation and policy and research decisions and differences in who thinks what autism is and who represents someone with autism. And given the great diversity of people across the spectrum, how can you ensure that all the facets of autism are represented, heard, and appreciated? This is a challenging issue because there are so many differences. Is it the ones who had the autism diagnosis as it was defined many, many years ago? Or is it the individuals who now more encompass autism as a difference and not a, any sort of challenge? And that the challenges are caused by people by the environmental differences or the lack of environmental supports. So what about then everyone in between who's kind of caught in the middle between these two kind of opposite viewpoints? So my guest on this podcast has encapsulated the discourse in a recent commentary by saying this, and I'm quoting him. Neither of these perspectives is right or wrong. They are accurate for their own defined purpose. Yet the desire to identify a unifying perspective of autism has generated tension across communities where separate viewpoints have gradually and then suddenly morphed into dueling camps. It's difficult to see how increasing entrenchment within these camps benefits a true unifying purpose across communities, which is supporting people to thrive. So I want to also say that autism researchers have not been just sitting by and watching this go on. They've been doing things like taking more of an active role and in including a broad diversity of individuals and family members into research from the beginning of an idea all the way to the dissemination of findings. They're listening to the full autism community. And this can be difficult because some voices are louder and should I say more dominant than others. One research in the UK for the most part, and this has actually been studied, that the researchers, so in the UK, the attitudes towards autism are kind of probably a little bit more on the neurodiversity side than the medical model side. And his name is Jonathan Green. And he wrote a commentary about an idea that could possibly bridge these two ideas or these two camps. We don't have Dr. Green on, we have someone better, Dr. Whitehouse, who explained and commented on the theory that Dr. Green Posited an idea and commentary in the same journal where Dr. Whitehouse proposed his explanation. I will put a link to both of these articles in the podcast summary. Dr. Green is great, but Dr. Whitehouse broke down the ideas and explained them in a very clear way. So, Dr. Whitehouse, after listening to me pontificate about this issue, I want to thank you for being on this podcast and also give you a chance to respond to anything I've said so far and everyone buckle up, you're in for a treat. 
Day, Alicia. Wow, fantastic. Thank you so much for that. And thank you so much um, for the invite. It really is an honour um, um, to be here. Um, look, I think that much of what you say um, is, is a really valid explanation as to where we are currently sitting at the moment. Um, I think just as a general point before we probably get into the, the, the broader uh, analysis of, of the paper and, and the discussion here, I think one of the challenges is that um, one of the one of the trends that we've seen over the last 10 to 20 years that perhaps we're not talking about enough is that I think in the research land, we're seeing a growth of um, researchers who don't necessarily have that clinical experience um, um, are interacting um, with kids and families across um, the lifespan across the spectrum, which means that we have a, a generation of um, researchers who may not be having the full um, a, uh, understanding of the challenges and joys that happen at each stage. And I think that can perhaps breed more myopic views of um, the concept of autism and how we can best support people to thrive across the lifespan. And I think that's just one trend that I sort of noticed over the last 20 years that perhaps has contributed to some of these camps that we talk about. That's a good point. That's a good point. And I do know, I will mention, I'm going to a family meeting, a Duke 15Q family meeting for uh, families that have this particular genetic mutation in chromosome 15. And they organized their science meeting to occur concurrently with their family meeting because they want their scientists to have, if they don't already, interactions with the community and get to actually meet people mm -hmm. with the genetic disorder that they're that they're actually studying. And I think that's a great model going forward in something that scientific conferences could maybe do a better job at is actually integrating the the actual true lived experiences of people from across the spectrum. Mm -hmm. I, th I, th I think so. And I think that um, there, there are many trends, obviously, that mine was a superficial analysis, but I think it is one trend that has contributed to um, a little bit of the kind of segregation that we tend to see and, and has contributed to the debate, um, particularly within the research um, sector. So could you describe in your own words, and you, you know, you travel internationally, but you have an Australian specific perspective, your, um, your kind of perception in your own words about the divisiveness in the community, what I kind of mentioned the two camps and and where it comes from. You did you did, you know, explain that there we have a whole new group of researchers, but there's also within the community what you know what's some examples or what what do you think is happening in the community that's causing so much divisiveness? Um, I think that it's a very good question, and I think there's a couple of things. Uh, I think there's obviously. The, the, the rise of the neurodiversity movement has, I believe, on the whole, been a really net fantastic thing. We have a whole generation um, of people who are finding purpose and belonging um, and understanding that whereas previously they wouldn't have. In fact, people would have been sort of um, uh, excluded from the community, from, from general community. And that is just an overwhelmingly wonderful thing. Um, we, we've also seen a challenge where there's been a tension between the core understanding of, of, of why we have diagnostic labels and what they're there to represent um, and uh, the use of diagnostic labels to signify um, identity. And, and as I indicate within the, the piece is that neither of those are right or wrong. 
they're, they're right for their specified purpose. Um, and what I've observed, without a doubt, has been um, an, a, an encroachment of beyond that specified purpose. And I think there's probably two elements that I, I, I think that we're lacking a little bit in the field. Um, I think number one is humility. Um, um, I, I'm, I'm perhaps not surprised, but, but really still shocked the degree of confidence with which people talk about how other people should live their lives. Um, I see this every day. Um, um, really, we need to sort of say that no one has the right to speak to the experience of other people. Um, uh, people are able to speak as to their own experience, um, and, and that's the end of um, where their expertise necessarily ends. Other people are also able to speak about their experience. So we must prioritise humility. And I think the other thing is that 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 we I think there is um, a, a courage is the second one that I would sort of put forward is that at times I think we're a little short on courage in this field. Um, we need people who have the courage to sort of speak up in a kind and respectful way, even in spite of some of the headwinds that may come. Um, and and not speaking up is also a choice, and that has consequences. Um, so at the same time, we also need to know when to be quiet. Um, I observe an enormous amount. Um, of playing to the crowd. Um, and again, that's on all sides. I see huge playing to the crowd on all sides. And again, that has consequences. So the courage to know when to speak up and when to be quiet, I think is also ext extremely important. So um, there are these two different um, uh, uh, views on what certain words mean. Um, and as I said, neither are right or wrong. They're, they're, they're accurate for our own specified purpose, but they also must be accompanied by humility and courage. And I think that's perhaps what I'd say we're a bit short on at the moment. Well said. That's well said. You um, so Dr. Reed in his uh, in his paper tried to reconcile the kind of the I don't the kind of the divisiveness by labeling autism both emergent and transactional. So instead of me explaining what this concept is, can you talk about the concept or the idea that Dr. Green said about autism being emergent and transactional? Oh, absolutely. I, look, I think this is a really interesting and um, exciting, and I'll tell you why I think it's exciting um, um, at the end, but I think it's an exciting kind of potential advance. Look. What this essentially, what Jonathan has put forward is, is a description, a potential description of how autism emerges in some kids. Um, that It's the view that children are not born with autism, what they are doing, because autism in a diagnostic sense is a description of behaviours that really only can be identified later on because they're, they're older kids, which have been two, three, four, their behaviours for older kids. Instead of being born with autism, children are born neurodivergent. Um, um, that is, they have neurological differences in how they interact, engage, understand and process the world. Now, these differences might be quite profound, but they might also be small. But the important thing is that small differences early in life can have profound consequences because that first year of life is so crucial to how um, brain, the brains develop. It's not just important for our brains to receive social interaction and social engagement um, uh, in those first few years of life. Our brains absolutely require it to develop. So even small differences in how we're neurologically processing and understanding the world can lead to large differences. So these neurological differences lead to behavioural differences that are first, they are emergent in the first years of life. So they grow over time and they grow through the transaction. That's the 
second element between the child and the environment. So small neurological differences um, have emergent behavioural differences that are the consequence of differences between how that child is engaging with the world. Um, and the clinical autism, where we diagnose autism, that's the consequence of that process. And that, that really only emerges at age two, three or four, where those behaviours we use to diagnose are present. Now, of course, this is not for every child. Some children have really fundamental um, large genetic differences that mean from very early on in life, these, this child is destined to be on a path to develop um, clinical autism. But that's not necessarily the case for everyone. The, the, the thing that really excites me about this is, number one, um, the evidence upon, its which, uh, upon which it's based. So firstly, basic science evidence. Um, I think that the kind of infant sibling or baby sib kind of data, I think for you know, to a large extent, there's been perhaps a bit of overhype in, in what it has generated in our understanding, but what it has actually shown, um, and I think is a really important advance, is that um, that, that these behaviours do emerge over time. Children aren't, don't come into the world and all of a sudden are fundamentally different. They are small differences that grow over time. But also that clinical evidence that actually if we are changing that social environment around the child in the very first years of life, actually that can have profound differences in, in um, the impacts or the emergence of those behaviours we use to diagnose autism. And if we can optimise that environment around some kids, actually it can um, mitigate the emergence of certain disabilities associated with autism. But finally, the most exciting thing is it provides a new terminology, which is based on science that I do think can provide that bridge between um, uh, two what I see as quite artificial camps um, within, within, this, within our sector. It can help us actually chart a course that says that actually early behaviours are emergent in life, they're caused by differences in how the child is interacting with the environment and clinical autism is, is the result. So that I see is the great pro, um, progress is that actually we can develop a new vocabulary that hopefully we can get to a point where that we're signing into. So just to be clear, these aren't two different types of autism. This is a process. It's both emergent and transactional. I just don't, I wanna be clear about what that what the terms mean. That's exactly right. So basically it's saying that um, emergent means that children aren't born with autism. What they're born is neurodivergent, but those autistic behaviours or the behaviours we use to diagnose autism emerging over life and in the early stage of life, and it emerges because of the transactional nature between the child and the environment. Um, and so you're exactly right. It describes a process, not subtypes. Yeah. So I want to get into a little bit more later on about how this may affect things like comorbidities and um, co-occurring psychiatric issues, because if you think of these things that way, it might explain why there are so many, if, if you're talking about neurodivergence and then transactional kind of shaping that, there's a lot of comorbidities across different psychiatric issues with autism, but I'll talk about that in a minute. What you, what the paper was actually about was about framing this around healthcare. So what, what does this framework or what does this kind of theory, how can it improve the healthcare supports that people receive and, and get? Oh, look, healthcare is the front line of how we support kids and, and families. Um, healthcare is absolutely vital. I see kids every single day who require substantial support um, um, to help them engage in the world. 
Um, look, every child is beautiful exactly how they come in the world. They are loved, they are valued, they're valuable, um, and, and we need to give them every opportunity in life. Some children are unfortunately born with greater barriers, and those barriers can be caused by many things, but at, without a doubt they are caused by um, um, uh, genetic and biological differences in, in how they're born, um, but also they're caused by differences in a society that's not set up to um, engage kids in the way that they deserve to be engaged. Um, and so this is where healthcare and supports come in. Um, my, my view around this is that parents, our responsibility as parents is to keep kids' options open as wide as possible. Our job is not to narrow options, it's to widen them as possible. And that means we have to have kids who are healthy, who are happy, who are able to engage in the world so they can choose who, you know, they can choose the path and who they want to be and how they're going to do that. So healthcare for me in the context of autism is that some kids have greater barriers than others caused by all sorts of reasons, both, both differences as well as the way that society is structured. How do we as clinicians remove those barriers to help that child and family be whoever they want to be? And for me, um, th th that is the link back to that emergent transactional view is that kids may be born with small differences early in life, but how can we actually help their engagement with the world so their options are as wide open to be whoever they want to be? You, you, some, you mentioned this a little bit, but I just want to be clear about interventions and supports. So there is this merging kind of feeling in some groups in the autism community that interventions that focus on the core symptoms of autism can be harmful because they may change who that person is as a as as a part of their nature one of these examples is aba but it's not limited to aba so how does this framework kind of explain or how does it address the needs for interventions and supports that's it, a really good question. I think I probably, if I can just take one step back and sort of say, you, you know, when the debate turns to ABA um, and we, we all of a sudden put people immediately go into camps, I think that for me asking, and this is not the question, but I'll, this is the question I'll answer, um, is around, um, you know, is ABA good or bad? It's like asking me, is water good or bad? You know, um, well, in one context, it, it helps us live. And in the other context, if we're underneath it, we die. And and um and so I think that ABA is 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 a similar kind of debate that there are um, absolutely historical wrongs um, and in the in the in the um, in the history of behavioural type interventions that um, um, need to be corrected. Um, this without a doubt, um, and, and and there's all sorts of histories to kind of um, go into that. Um, there, there is also context in which children might be hurting themselves, others, or, or, or property, and, and, and actually we need to do everything that we can to support them so that we can help them to thrive. So what we need to do is to maintain the focus on that child and how we first support them to thrive and open up their opportunities. That, for me, is, is the main focus, and, and, and we need to you know, main, maintain our focus on safety and efficacy as we get there. In the context of this particular model, um, what this model do, does is actually prioritise um, supports before um, we get to the point of diagnosis. It, it says that actually um, the more that we can help that child engage in, a in the world and help them learn in the way that's best for them early on in life, 
um, that can actually have a difference in how um, um, the emergence of autistic characteristics later in life. Um, and so uh, th that really, it has a focus very early in life, perhaps um, uh, at a time when other supports might not be into play. But what it does say that um, autistic characteristics are actually, in to some extent, a consequence of um, early um, experiences and differences in how that child is interacting with the world. And that actually, if we can change or the environment around the child to help that child interact in the, in the world in the way that helps them then learn, then that can have an effect on autistic characteristics later in life. I think we just need to be really clear that the diagnostic behaviours we use to diagnose autism, it's a deficit focus criteria. They are described as disabilities. And um, what we can do is cherish neurodiversity, but also seek to reduce the disability for that child so they can thrive. And that's the kind of reframing that I'm trying to do here. That's well said, because I, I, you could use the word, instead of ABA, you could use it ZYZ or something like that. Yeah. But a intervention or a support that inherently, because it's targeting those core symptoms, may in fact move someone's autism features one way or another, right? So there is there are individuals or there is beliefs that because these are differences that should be embraced, that in fact, when you kind of move them either towards, say, better communication or higher levels of, of executive functioning or, you know, improved uh, social interactions. If you move those in any way, you're actually changing the core of someone who someone is, and that in itself as a is 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 detrimental. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I mean just two examples would be. Uh, I mean, if we look at those diagnostic criteria of autism, which are, are deficit focused, and 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 uh, are focused on um, um, all of the things that. Um, um, yeah, really create that they're focused on the things that are seen as negative about autism and and so we can all I think we can all agree on that what we need to do is sort of understand um, um, the sort of parameters within that so if we focus on some of the social communication differences well at, at one extreme we can have kids who are not engaging with the world but are extremely frustrated because they can't communicate it it is absolutely right and appropriate for their own human rights that we help give them those words. We help, we help support them to engage. Nobody's trying to change how the, the, um, uh, the way that they're thinking or the way that they're formulating um, um, their engagement with the world. What we're seeking to do is to help them express that. And that, that in the sense, so um, um, one, is one, um, one extreme does not necessarily equal the, the other extreme. The same would be for restricted and repetitive behaviours. Um, you know, some children have restricted and repetitive um, behaviours to the point that creates enormous anxiety and the suffering that these kids and, and families experience as a result of that is extreme. Um, it is absolutely right to try and reduce what is a disability for that child, um, um, not to ameliorate that restricted and repetitive behaviour. I, I really don't think that that's a view that's common um, anymore. But what we need to do is take the edge off that behaviour so that they can actually interact with the world with less distress. And so I think that we need to sort of, there's not an all or none here, is that we're seeking to um, create, reduce the disability so that child can be who they want to be. 
Yeah, I hear a lot when people hear the words restrictive and repetitive behaviors that they they say, well, I flap my hands, you want to get rid of that. And I'm thinking, no, if that was the only restrictive and repetitive behavior that my daughter exhibited, then I would be fine with that. The flapping, the circling, all that. But the skin picking, the head banging, like those are things that you obviously want to change. So I think that because it's all lumped together in one restrictive and repetitive behavior, that when you refer to it as a restrictive and repetitive behavior, that there's an immediate response based on their your own experience with that. So people's experience may be, oh, I like to, you know, hold a, you know, squeeze a stress ball, or I like to flap my arms to kind of reduce anxiety. That's their experience. And therefore anything that changes that is harmful without kind of fully appreciating that a restrictive and repetitive behavior can be something different than that as well. Well, I, th I think that's right. And it goes back to my humility point that I was trying to make before is, is that I'm constantly shocked at how people, I mean, not surprised, but shocked nevertheless, that people um, have such confidence in trying to control or at least tell other people as to how they should live their lives. One thing we all agree on is the sort of fundamental bill of human rights. Um, and, um, and nobody that I know of is seeking to change those in our kids. What we also need to do is to understand that other people have different experiences um, and that actually um, some of uh, uh, these behaviours, when taken to extreme, are a fundamental disability in how that child interacts with the world and causes them distress. And, and our job, um, in fact, it is our sole job, is to reduce that distress and struggle in that family's life so they can be who they want to be. We're not trying to change that. So we talked about how this is kind of a unifying kind of, uh, kind of theory, but also, you know, you also don't want to infringe on the individual differences. And I'm, I'm looking towards... Um, you know, the individuals who may value their own, um, say they like the hand flapping or that it, it reduces anxiety for them or the circling versus the family member who's in, whose family member is exhibiting severe aggression, right? So given everybody's, you know, personal experience with it and how things can be so different within the, you know, even when you talk about repetitive and restrictive behaviors those can be so different while this is unifying do you see a role for different kind of not a different diagnosis but different kind of conceptualizations or definitions or classifications within an autism diagnosis that may help those who say need help with a you know, an aggressive individual. And I have a lot of friends who's, you know, it's not me, but like little petite moms and their sons who, you know, have been on risperidone or another drug and are big and burly and aggressive. And so that's a big problem, right? This isn't hand flapping. It's not circling. It's not an intense interest in a, in a bathroom hairdryer. This is dangerous. So do you see a role for these different subgroups? I'm not saying you and I have to figure out what the groups are or what um, what they should be or who belongs in what group, but is there, even though we're talking about unifying, are there roles for like different subgroups or different 
classifications or different definitions within autism? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Alicia. And I guess I now have um, the experience of, you know, the true privilege of having 20, 25 years in this field and, and really have seen the emergence from um, autism as a really rare condition diagnosed for people with quite significant um, uh, intellectual disability almost exclusively through through to the manifestations across the years and, and to now. Um, and so that that provides a privileged vantage point. I, I, I think I'm not too sure if we need subclass or subgroup, but we need to do something. I, I think that's unequivocal that we need to do something. What, what is undeniably true um, is that there is a large number of people who feel unseen, unvalued, and that they don't feel that their needs are being met. And that simply is not good enough. I mean, it's actually one of the reasons we created diagnostic categories in the first place, mm -hmm. is so people would have those needs met so they could be seen, so they could be seen to be valued and also have those needs met. That was one of the origins of diagnostic categories. Um, it's clear that the diagnostic categories, um, that diagnostic categories can never meet the needs of all people, but it seems to me in the context of autism, there is a very large proportion I'm not too sure if that's a minority or majority, but there is a large proportion of people who are not feeling that their needs are met. And that says to mean that we've probably hit a threshold where those diagnostic criteria or labelling or whatever um, is not meeting the needs of people to, have, to feel seen and valued. One thing is also for sure is that it's not okay to have one view completely steamrolled the other and that that's both ways and 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 I, I see that very often um and um the the way that the profound autism um categorization uh, proposal has sort of played out has been the same um and and that's the same from sort of both sides and 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 um it's been disappointing to watch um, um and so that's why i'd like to sort of step back and sort of say, well, what's the purpose of diagnostic categories? And, and for me, it's it's to have, it's to inform, oh, sorry, it's to provide understanding. So, you know, family and child or adult, this is the journey that you've been on to this path um, and, and inform. This is the journey that can, can happen going forward and this is how we can support you. I think there's a large number of people, well, I know there's a large number of people who don't feel those needs are met. So I feel like we need to do something so this is the part where you and I are going to solve the world's problems here. And um, how do we, so with regards to representation and making sure that everyone's needs are met, how do we begin to do this? How are we going to rep respect people who see autism as a identity, but at the same time, help those who see autism as a disability or who, who view it as disabling? Um, so you have, how do, how do we make, how do we meld the two given, and again, we may not have the answer to this. I wish I did, but what are your thoughts about some, some first steps about how we can continue to respect other people's viewpoints and their own personal experiences while also respecting that not everyone with autism is the same? Yeah. Well, firstly, I think perhaps, and I'm not too sure if you and I agree on this point, but, but both are true. You know, um, and first, that's the first thing we need to say is that um, um, we should celebrate um, and cherish the differences that um, um, autistic people bring to the world and, and, and how they have changed the world, my own, my own personal life, my own professional life, 
um, has been profound. And it is also true that many people, um, um, in fact, the majority of autistic people do have very um, significant struggles in the way that they interact with the world. Um, I'm not going to be able to solve this now, <laughs> but what I can sort of say is that the um, that the experience that I have on a daily um, daily experience, the daily experience I have interacting with dozens of families um, is that this is a niche argument in their life. This is mm -hmm. a niche argument in their life. Um, and yet it is the only thing that's getting airplay at the moment. And so when I meet a new family who's, who's come in, their children, child is developing differently, they're desperate to understand how they can support that child's life. So honestly, how so they can do whatever they want in their own life, which is what all of us want for our kids. Um, and it is only at the point, and so at that point, what families are thinking is it both of those views, that their child is so special and that they want the whole world to know how special and valued their child is. But they're also coming in with a view, my child is in desperate need of help. How can we do that? So I think the solution um, is number one, we, we all of us um, in this area, we need to recognise it's a niche argument um, to families who are engaging in struggle at that very acute phase. But we also need to recognise that this is an issue that is going to continue to plague us and those families and get provide a barrier to their thriving. So I guess my view is think about that person who's coming in who is both thinking that their child is the most special and amazing child in the world, and they are. Um, and as well as all of the disability that they experience and how can we nurture that view all the way through their life? That's that's what I would sort of start. That would be my starting point. That's very well said. And I, I do agree with you. I, I, I feel like, you know, I feel like for some people having this argument, I mean, we're having this discussion and we're privileged to have it. Um, to think about this on a, a philosophical level, because this is what I sometimes call a princess conversation, where like most people who are in this position are not really thinking about this in uh, in this theoretical perspective. They're just trying to get by day to day to think about how do they manage themselves? How do they manage their family? How do they make sure that everyone in their family is living their best life? And, um, you know, and this could include people from all over the world, right? So, you know, yeah. you and I come from very, very, you know, first world problems here where we can talk about these things, but there's a lot of places in the world where you don't talk about this. You just go and you get what you need and you kind of, you know, deal with these issues on a day-to-day -day basis without even realizing you're dealing with them. So, um, I do also want to recognize that, that we're both in very privileged positions to be having this very conversation. But I think it's an important conversation to have because it is something, as as I think I've said, that most people view this as not necessarily a gift, but they love their children. They love themselves. A child is a child to somebody, no matter how old they are. So I say child, that could be a 70-year-old child. But um, you know, however old they are, a person is special, but we all need help. And it's, 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 it's okay to say that without feeling recrimination. So um, do you have any last thoughts or things that you wanted to say that we didn't get to cover on this topic or really anything else? 
Oh, look, I think I think that, you know, where this really starts to focus, thank you, Alicia. I think I think that where this really starts to focus is 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 who is talking for the autistic community? Who is the person talking, particularly in representations to government? And and I think that's where it really starts to get to the pointy end and where um blood pressures on, on um, for everyone starts to rise a little bit. And, uh, I, generally, I do have a view on this, and 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 because I, I do, I'm very focused on um, changing policies within Australia, my own context, and that's really a big focus for me. I, I think that we're often um, government and and others are often selecting individuals in terms of representation based on ideological views, um, rather than personal abilities to focus on the things that matter. And and as we talked about, that's about helping people thrive. So I, I think in terms of who makes representations to government in a formal capacities, I think we need to really change our frame of reference in how we select those people. I think that I've talked about the two characteristics I think are really crucial here. One is humility, um, and that's, you know, that that actually that you might have a strongly held view, but that actually your, your view is influenced so greatly about by your own personal experience and actually other people bring their own personal experience and that is equally valid. And the other one is courage. Um, that's courage to speak out and, and knowing that not speaking out is actually a choice, but it's also the courage to shut up. Um, um, and that's actually to say that, you know, um, playing to the crowd might have its benefits personally, but sometimes it can actually be damaging um, um, to the, the tenor of the debate. So for these kinds of initiatives, um, I think we tend to select people based on um, ideological views rather than how they hold their views. And so my advocacy would be absolutely to change our frame of reference by starting with that end. We all care about um, the same thing and that's people thriving in the way that they wanna thrive. And so there is space for all views, but it has to be accompanied by humility in your own view and encouraging in accepting others as they are with a clear-eyed focus on thriving in all its forms. So I, I guess in, the, in that context, which I think is really the pointy end, this is when it really becomes who gets to, to frame the, the, the public narrative around autism. I change our frame of reference from focusing on including people with different ideologies to focusing on people who come with humility and courage in how they hold their views. Thank you for saying that. And thank you for participating in this, uh, this podcast. I am so honored and uh, we will have to do this again. Oh, it was a ripper conversation. Thanks so much. Thank